You're listening to. Hey, welcome to Books and Bobo, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here for our February 2024 mid-month book news check-in, uh, where we go over the latest Asian and Asian American related book and publishing news. Um, as always, the Books and Boba podcast is supported by you, our listeners, at patreon.com slash booksandboba, uh, where our supporters get access to our members-only Discord server, as well as bonus podcast episodes. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, come support us on Patreon. Um, Rira, hope you had a happy Valentine's Day and happy New Year. Um, technically, for um, the Chinese tradition, the New Year's Spring Festival is a whole week long, so we're still in the midst of it. But um, yeah, hopefully, hoping you're having a good holiday February holiday season. Yeah, I can't believe we're already midway into February. I feel like January was the longest month ever, and then I blinked, and it's you know <laughs> Valentine's Day already. Uh, yeah. Do you have any plans with, uh, with your wife for Valentine's Day? Um, not really. Um, we, we typically take it easy on Valentine's Day. Yeah, um, I feel like this is the case with most couples who have been around for, for a long time, you know? Yeah, I mean, our tradition back in the day was just to go to soup plantation. Um, but that's off the table now. So I think we're, I don't know, we might just order in, have a little, um, actually, my wife will be going to the office for the first time in two months tomorrow. Uh, we're recording this the day before Valentine's Day. Um, so I'll probably just make dinner so that it's ready when she comes back. Yeah. Okay. Do you I, have any plans? Uh, not not really. But in in the past, like we've gone to like dinners and we've done like movie nights and like uh, indoor picnics. So we might do something like that this uh, this time. Um, but I do remember like uh, it's been it's been over 10 years, but. Uh, over 10 years ago, we moved to California on Valentine's Day. <laughs> wow. We had no furniture <laughs> and we had just gotten our apartment and uh, all of our stuff had not come to the state yet. So we just like slept on wow. the ground. That was that was my Valentine's Day, my first Valentine's <laughs> Day in California. And it was our first Valentine's Day together as a couple. Wow. Well, happy Valentine's California anniversary. Uh, yeah. We're we're glad you're here with us. Yes. But yeah, we're here today to talk about the latest book and publishing news. Um, as always, we start off our mid-month check-in with a recap of the latest publishing news um, compiled by Rira from Publishers Weekly and other sources around the internet. So yeah, let's get started. Uh, Rira, what is our first book deal? So our first book deal is, in an exclusive submission, Henry Holt bought world rights to Remy Lai's new middle-grade graphic novel, Me and My Pet Demon. When apathetic 13-year-old Dom Noir accidentally summons a demon, she has no choice but to take him in as a pet. Just as she starts to genuinely care for the demon, ominous signs of an apocalypse starts appearing all over town, and she might have to send her new friend back where he came from. Publication is planned for spring 2026. Yeah, sounds sounds cute in like a scary way. I mean, I'm assuming this demon is a cute demon, right? Otherwise, I mean, it would have to be a cute demon if you want to keep it as a pet. Yeah, I'm thinking like Inuyasha, 
like type of of demons where like it it it, it looks very cute but sign of an apocalypse happening all over town just because you have a a cute demon pet that sounds uh that sounds like quite a misadventure yeah sounds like a great time um hanging out with your demon buddy in the apocalypse um it's kind of i love that it's a mix of like kid meets wild animal pet slash like demon invasion i think it's a good it's a good mix that like it kind of reminds me of like a more demonic version of et right (laughs) except instead of scary g-men coming to take your your alien pet it's like other demons coming how do you accidentally summon a demon like i like i wonder if like the 13 year old is like part of um i don't know like a summoner family or maybe it's like beetlejuice where you say beetlejuice three times and uh he appears i don't know i mean who knows what kinds of ancient um rituals you might accidentally stumble into right saying something three times knocking on wood wrong opening you know? a magical book that i mean this is how sealed. all horror movies start so you know i'm like imagining uh what is it like card capture sakura where you have like the the cloud cards book and when she opens it kiro pops up and he's like the guardian of the book and he looks like this cute little teddy bear with wings and i'm like is that the pet demon is is it going to be that level <laughs> of cute um since we don't since it's a graphic novel and we don't have the illustrations in front of us, it'll be really funny if the demon isn't cute, if it's just like actually really demonic and the kid is like, oh my God, it's so cute. I mean, some people love really ugly looking dogs and those skinless cats. So there's something Like I'm everybody. thinking about kids who like bring home raccoons or possums and they're like, mom, can I keep this? And it's like, no, no, it's, it, they're not meant to to be house pets and, and they're kind of gross. So no. Yeah, well, congratulations to Remy Lai on their book deal. Um, Next up, Abrams acquired world rights to the first two books in a new early reader graphic novel series titled Once Upon a Tale by Audrey Parrott and Charlene Chua. Wallace, a knightly horse, and Poppy, an eccentric dragon, are the best of friends who end up in the silliest of situations in their fantastical medieval land of La-di-da. Publication is set for spring and fall 2026. Another graphic novel series uh, with fantastical elements. Um, I, this sounds really cute. Have you ever been to Ren Fair or any like type of like medieval uh, event? Does medieval times count? Yes, medieval times does count. I mean, it's in the name. You've been to medieval times? I've never been. I've been like three times. My night never wins, though. It's very sad. I've also been to the Chachki version at the Excalibur. In Las Vegas. Oh, interesting. I've always wanted to go, but I like never had the chance. The closest I've been to is like going to Ren Fairs, and uh, those are really fun. Yeah, I love that it's a friendship, a friendship between a knightly horse and a dragon. So like no humans involved. Um, I love that these are animal friends just having good times in their medieval land. Yeah, and it does make me wonder if you know. It's like if there were no humans in fairy tales, would all the fantastical creatures get along? Because, you know, knights usually slay dragons and this horse doesn't have a knight. And it's like, we're best friends. Um, So, yeah, very cute. And uh, it sounds really fun. All right. Next up, Knopf acquired world rights to A Forgery of Fate by Elizabeth Lim, a YA novel set in the same world as Six Crimson Cranes, plus two more untitled works. 
The story, a reimagining of Beauty and the Beast, centers on a young art forger who enters a marriage contract with a mysterious dragon lord to pay off her family's debts, and finds herself entangled in a web of divine assassinations and intrigue. Publication is planned for summer 2025. I love Beauty and the Beast reimaginings. It's like they're always so good. Yeah, and lots of great keywords that really catch my interest, where you have divine assassinations and intrigue, which promise things like politics and maybe some court drama, as well as a contracted marriage, which is a trope that I've been seeing a lot in like a lot of the webtoons that I read, um, which which is fun too. Um, you know, it's like the we're not going to fall in love, but we're going to fall in love in the end. Yeah, and I like the fact that it has the trope of oh, you want to save your family from a mountain of debt it's always the debts and it's always uh it's always the dad for some reason but it, it sounds could fun be the mom you know it could be the mom who Moms knows can wreck up debt too i mean yeah. she's an art forger so i'm like huh into the black market scene are we <laughs> yeah well she could be you know the white hat forger you know the 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 inside person to catch other forgers that could be that could be it. But um, yeah, congratulations to Elizabeth on the new book deals. Um, looking forward to her untitled works too. Haven't read any of her books yet. So maybe this will be an excuse to like get started um, since she's expanding her world. Um, but yeah, next up, Capstone bought world rights to 100th Day of School with Yasmin. First in a new Holidays with Yasmin series written by Sadia Faruqi and illustrated by Debbie Ramalia. This chapter book follows second grader Yasmin as she finds the perfect way to celebrate 100th day, teach her Nani and Nana about the holiday, and honor an ancestor all at once. Other holidays in the series debut include Juneteenth, Eid, and Indigenous Peoples Day. Publication is slated for spring 2025. Are you familiar with 100th? When I hear 100th day, I think of the, like... Chinese tradition of like having like a birthday party on the oh yeah day. like tour in in Korean yeah absolutely that's the first thing that I think of also like hundredth day for couples in in Korea because that's like a <laughs> huge thing it's it's like um like Koreans are really really into anniversaries so there's like the hundredth day anniversary the two hundredth day anniversary and um obviously the year. And the annual anniversary, and then you have like the th- you have like the five hundredth yeah. day anniversary, and I'm just like, wow, that's that's a lot of dedication. How do you keep track? Obviously, there are apps. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering if this is like because I'm trying to Google hundredth day, and I'm only getting the Chinese and Korean version of it. Well, it says hundredth day of school, so oh. I'm guessing it's like. Yasmin's 100th day of school. It's like, congratulations. You Is that a holiday? I don't know. Maybe the school celebrates. Who knows? Yeah, it's a holiday that started in 1979 in Livermore, California, and now a significant part of classroom culture. Oh, interesting. Maybe not so significant because I've never celebrated my 100th day of school. It's my first time hearing about it. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah, I think it's really cool that the series is going to dive into other holidays like Juneteenth, Eid, and Indigenous Peoples Day because those are holidays that aren't really featured heavily in in like mainstream literature. Yeah, I love that it's um they're all holidays that are less prominent but becoming more prominent recently, right? Like I know at least in LA County, um Indigenous Peoples Day is the official name of that day instead of the other dude, which which is progress. Wait, let me check my Google calendar. Let me let me see if Google acknowledges it as 
an actual um no it does okay that's progress i feel like for the longest time it was uh columbus day on like school calendars even even when it colloquially changed to indigenous people's day <laughs> all right next up double day bought the baby who stayed awake forever by sandra salisbury they tried lullabies, binkies, and cuddles, but now it's 3 a.m. and Baby has achieved a new level of consciousness. Every family who ever spent a sleepless night with a newborn will feel seen in this book about the uncanny ability of babies to stay awake forever. Publication is planned for spring 2025. Wow, isn't this like such a relatable uh, book for, for young parents out there? I remember when my brother was a baby. He would not go to sleep until like 3 a.m. And it was hell for everybody involved in my family. So, yeah. Um, is this do we know if this is like a picture book or like like what's the what's the format of this book? It's a picture book. Sandra Salisbury is a children's book illustrator. So I'm guessing that this is a book that she wrote and illustrated. Yeah, so I guess this is um, geared towards, you know, for young children, um, maybe to ease them through the process of being an older sibling with a baby sibling who does not sleep. Yeah, I can I can relate as an older sibling who had to deal with uh, both my brothers being babies and never sleeping. So, yeah. All right. Um, next up, Rise and Penguin Workshop bought world rights to three books in a new board book series called This Is Dance by STEAM and early education expert Rekha S. Rajan and illustrated by Chris Park. The series is an inclusive international exploration of dance genres, including ballet, hip hop and jazz. Publication will begin in spring 2025. It's pretty cool. I feel like kids these days have a more wider selection of dance to get into i think when i was a kid it was mostly just what like ballet and i guess wushu can kind of be a dance kind of your learning steps and things like that i did wushu when i was a kid. yeah i did a lot of dance when i was a kid uh, i did ballet i did um tap and and then i did <laughs> korean traditional dance but um yeah i think like dancing is a really great way for kids to like you know be active and you can also like have dance be part of like a class curriculum so it, you can like weave it together with um elementary education so i think this is a pretty cool book series and uh, because this is a board book series i'm guessing that um this is geared towards like much younger kids and maybe the parents will like demonstrate some of the <laughs> dance moves who knows it sounds really cute why demonstrate we can just pull up tiktok and show them sensory issues i guess <laughs> you don't want to <laughs> overstimulate your kids um but yeah like mm -hmm. congratulations to Rekha. Okay, next up, Andrews McMeal acquired Folk Remedy, a middle-grade graphic novel series by Jem Yoshioka. Set in a Taisho-inspired fantasy Japan, the graphic novel is about an apprentice apothecary's encounter with the mischievous yokai and their adventures together in the hidden spirit world. Publication is scheduled for fall 2025. Love a good apothecary story. Um, oh, it's just something about... Um, having a main character who's just good at like putting together potions. Yeah, whenever I like play video games and there's like this, uh, like an option to make potions or like to do like cooking, I I always enjoy that part of the game quite a lot. Yeah. Um, 
This kind of reminds me of the first graphic novel that uh, we mentioned in our book deals this episode because we're talking about yokai, which is, you know, Japanese demons. Um, and it is about like a young person who has like some kind of summoning slash encounter with a demon. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Except this one has no apocalypse. And this one's just about going on fun adventures together with your with your demon buddy. I guess a human being in a, in a hidden spirit world can be an apocalypse of, of some sort. I mean, you could you could die in the spirit world. Who knows? I mean, yeah, but apocalypse is usually like a yeah, a yeah, I get it. Threat, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, congratulations to Jim on the book deal. Um, next up, Random House Schwartz bought in a preempt World Rights to Navigating Night, written by Asian Pacific American Award winner Julie Leung and illustrated by Angie Kang. Based on the author's childhood experience, this picture book is about the mutual support and understanding found between an immigrant father and his American-born daughter on their long night drives making Chinese food deliveries for their restaurant. Publication is set for spring 2026. I feel like all the restaurant kids out there will appreciate this book. <laughs> it's a it's a hard life when your parents uh, work a Chinese restaurant or any kind of restaurant in general. Um, long hours, not a lot of breaks, but it's nice that uh, this book explores kind of like, you know, a bond between the kid and the parent, even though like they're living this very hectic life. Yeah, I think it's cool to have like a children's book um, that centers on working class families as well, um, because, you know, as we know, the Asian American experience is not a monolith. Uh, we have families from all classes and ways of life. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot when it comes to picture books, um, because picture books are so accessible. You know, it's it's great to see these experiences represented both for kids in those experiences and for kids outside of those so they can build their empathy like i think uh, we've read a lot of you know restaurant family stories for our book club so uh, to see a version for younger readers is, is pretty cool all right our last book deal is in a preempt park row books acquired world english rights to a good indian girl by mansi shah the novel tells the story of a disgraced Indian-American divorcee and former chef who spends a summer in Italy, where she reckons with a life-changing decision. Publication is set for September 2024. Ooh, this sounds... It sounds like the setup of like a rom-com, but it could also be like a... Eat, eat um, pray, love, but with an actual person of color <laughs> doing their journey. Um, yeah, yeah. I I love that it's set in Italy, and the character, the protagonist, is a former chef because you know lots of great food in Italy. Maybe it'll spark that passion again for <laughs> for cooking. Yeah, having been to Italy a couple months ago, definitely a lot of things to to inspire um, someone going through you know a tough time. So. Um, excited to learn more about it. I'm excited to see just what type of story this is going to be, but love the premise already. So congratulations to Mansi um, on the book deal. And with that being our last book deal to discuss, um, let's move on to our book news segment uh, where we talk about the book news and let's be honest, book tea that's caught our eye um, this month. Um, Rira, why don't you start us off with um, what's been going on with the Hugo Awards? Hey everyone, it's Marvin. Um, just a quick heads up that this episode was recorded on Tuesday, February 13th, 
right before a bunch of emails from the Hugo Awards got leaked, um, essentially confirming some of our speculation from our discussion. So um, just in case you're wondering, um, we do know about the updates. Uh, We just recorded this before. Um, Okay, back to the show. Yeah, if you've been active in book Twitter, booktube, and book talk, you've probably heard this news. It's kind of everywhere. So on the weekend of January 20th, the Hugo Awards released its document of voting statistics for the 2023 awards, uh, which was held at the World Science Fiction Convention in Chengdu, China. And this was the first time uh, the awards was uh, being held there. And at the time, there was a lot of confusion on like why certain books were not uh, nominated, even though they had enough votes. So one of those books was Babel by R.F. Kuang. Yeah. Um, yeah, the stats revealed that she was ineligible for the Hugo Best Novel Award, despite receiving the third most nominating votes. Um, Babel, obviously, we've read it for book club on this, on this show. It's gotten huge acclaim. It was a New York Times bestseller. And um, it was a book that really went into the impacts of like Western imperialism. So people were kind of confused on like why such a successful book was not nominated for for Hugo um, or was nominated and deemed ineligible. And another author who was deemed ineligible was uh, Sharon J. Zhao. Um, Their book Iron Widow was also deemed ineligible for the Astounding Award, even though... um, the book received the fourth most nominating votes in the category. Um, and then there were like other works that were also deemed ineligible. So episode six of Sandman and Paul Weimer, who was nominated for best fan writer, uh, they were deemed ineligible for unknown reasons. And, um, you know, like at the time there was like a lot of confusion. The uh, Hugo Awards wasn't, saying anything like they did not like say anything to the authors on why their books were deemed ineligible and uh the news came back uh to light because Sharon J Zhao tweeted on January 21st wait 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 I just found out RF Kuang and I were deliberately excluded from the Hugo Awards in Chengdu last year for unspecified reasons despite having the votes to be finalists in our categories question mark question mark question mark and this just kind of sparked, um, like, it, it just sparked a huge conversation on, on Twitter and in other book spaces. Yeah, I mean, it's surprising how it feels like the Hugo Awards were caught by surprise by this backlash when it released its own stats because. Like it doesn't take like a an expert statistician to see that there's a discrepancy there where, you know, obviously the people who get the most nominations should be on that short list, right? On the of nominees. And if they weren't, that means there's something, something would happen there. And it's extra fishy when asked about the reasons that they could give no specific answers, besides that they just follow the rules. Like if that's the case, then there should be transparency in like exactly what made these books ineligible and it's hard not to speculate on the reasons specifically because of the people involved and the works involved, right? Like Babel being disqualified is extra baffling because the story itself is like pretty pro, like not pro China, but it's like what the book is against is Western colonialism. And it's hard to see where 
let's say China might find fault with that unless you're talking about the characters, the main characters in that book being um, queer. And you know, China has had a history of either censoring or not allowing like Western movies in because of LGBT scenes, right? So, I mean, nothing's confirmed, but it's super fishy. Yeah, I've heard rumors about... Um Rebecca's family on how they're how they've been critical of the CCP in in the past and that might have something to do with it who knows I mean it's it's a it's a literary awards so yeah. I just find it a little bit strange if that like played into their decision to exclude her from um the Hugo best novel award <laughs> but I remember this was an issue when um, they first announced that the 2023 Hugos were going to take place in China because of the the censorship and the political nature. And it's kind of like, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? It's hard not to see the political machinations on these decisions when the explanations are so opaque. And Sharon J. Zhao, like if you follow them on Twitter, then you'll know that they are very vocal about um, a lot of politics. Like they're posting a lot about uh, Palestine right now and what happened in Rafa. And also they've posted about various topics on Chinese culture. And I don't know if that ruffled some feathers, but that's yeah. another thing. I mean, they were also very vocal about the treatment of like ethnic minorities in China. Like, the Oh, Uyghurs. yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, so, yeah. mm, sus, sus. Uh, but Dave McCarthy, the, uh, the head of the 2023 Hugo Awards jury, wrote on Facebook, Nobody has ordered me to do anything. There was no communication between the Hugo administration team and the Chinese government in any official matter. And in another response, he wrote, After reviewing the Constitution and the rules, we must follow the administration team determined those works-slash-persons were not eligible. And there were no elaborations on what the rules were, and it's just so suspicious. Yeah, I mean, that could... Be totally true. This could be another example of, say, corporate or organizational cowardice, right? Like maybe they're so afraid of being censured or getting in trouble with um, the Chinese government that they preemptively disqualify these books. And it's entirely possible in the realm because I don't know if you've read like competition rules or like bylaws and things like that. They're very steeped in legalese. And I can very easily imagine a scenario where certain works, if um, voted on by like the admin team or board leadership or whatever can be disqualified for any reason. I mean, I can't say for sure because I have not read the rules, but there's definitely like, there's probably ways for you to like finagle a perfectly legal reason to disqualify these books. But the underlying reason being that they were afraid of the Chinese government. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because the Hugos has been known uh, to be pretty transparent over like the last 70 years of, of, the awards existing so um yeah it is a little bit concerning to see like what's going to happen moving forward are they going to um are they going to change the rules when it comes to eligibility who knows <laughs> i mean it just feels like they shot themselves in the foot by releasing that data right because now yeah why did they like people kind board, of forgot about it for for a while because it yeah. was like last year <laughs> Yeah, I mean, institutions like the Hugos um, and Worldcon, they live or die based on their reputation. And the fact that it's out there now that you can be nominated, you can have the votes to be nominated for an award, but be left off the ballot because of political reasons or political concerns. 
arbitrary political concerns. Um, I don't know how you come back from that as an awards that's supposed to like the Hugo Awards were like one of the top awards of the industry, right? I mean, it's still one of the most, if not the most celebrated award for uh, genre writing, for science fiction writing. So it it is kind of a shame that this, this happened. Um, but yeah, sharing the data, definitely not. <laughs> in, in their effort to be transparent, they showed how untransparent they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Part of me hopes that they never let this down, but another part of me is kind of like resigned for the fact that like people probably forget about this by the time this year's um, Hugo's rolls around. Um, And that's just the way it is. Yeah. The next time they fuck up. (laughs) Yeah. Until the next time. Pretty much. All right. So our next piece of news is uh, this op-ed that kind of got circulated in the YA author sphere. Um, So there was this op-ed that was posted on The Millions, uh, written by Jordan Castle. And the headline was, YA isn't just for young adults. And of course, that that's not a good sign just from reading the headline. It's like a very knee-jerk reaction. Um, And pretty much the op-ed, as you can guess from the headline, it goes into like why... YA is not just for young people, that adult readers should be included in its content creation um, and how like most Y, like a good chunk of YA readers slash buyers are between the ages of 30 and 44 years old. So they deserve to be seen in this genre and A lot of YA authors and librarians were like, actually, maybe adults should stay out of the young adult genre. Um, I guess not genre because it's it's an age range. And there has been this ongoing issue of adult readers kind of taking over teen spaces. Yeah, I mean, for me, it feels like one of the core reasons for this or the core causes is just corporate marketing right like corporate decision making in general is very data-based right they make decisions based on data based on streamlining and based on like simplifying the qualitative to the quantitative and making decisions based on numbers and so through that lens it's easier to see how the term ya has gone from like a descriptor of the intended age of its reading audience to a marketing label for a line of products that cater to a growing audience and since the audience seems to be more and more older adults the product then is required to change to accommodate the the growing market. And I know some of the replies to this article state that, like, you know, the adult fans of YA literature should be its own market. Like, they should have their own label. Yeah. Um, so one of the threads that have been circulating has been by Alex Brown, who is a BIPOC uh, librarian. And um, I'm just going to read some of the tweets in that thread that, like, stood out. It's fine to read outside your age range, but the problem is adults have colonized a genre meant for teens to the point where we get maybe two books a year out of hundreds with a 14-year-old protagonist and all the rest are 18-year-olds who act like 30-year-olds. People want something that is less intense than adult but more mature than YA, so give it to them. Stop taking from YA teens who actually need these books written for them. 
they need a wide variety of experiences, identities, genres, and ages. And another really good thread was uh, written by Bethany Baptiste, who is the author of The Poisons We Drink. And um, they wrote, I feel like if Trad Pub actually understood what new adult was and stopped trying to fit it as YA or adult, everyone would be happy. But instead, Trad Pub forces authors to push new adult books as YA or adult. There is no in-between and 18 to 19-year-olds are left in the dust. I know for like a hot second, the new adult genre was a thing where there were books being geared towards uh, college students, right? Because there was like quite this hunger being like, oh my God, like, you know, I... Like, I, like, I'm not in high school anymore, but I'm also, like, not a fully-fledged adult. So I want to read books where um, my struggles in finding my identity is represented on the page. And that's very important. However, when you are upping the age in actual middle grade and young adult novels and you have adult readers kind of demanding that there be more spicy scenes, it's... It's like, why? This book is not for you. (laughs) Yeah. How much do you think that's just the fact that like, especially us millennials have been in this state of like arrested development for much of our adult lives where we are in that space of like not quite true adults because we're not allowed to be because the boomers don't retire and we've been stuck in this terrible economy since college. But there's so many coming um, of age books in adult novels. You know, like there there is a market for that. There are books that caters towards true. millennial uh, millennial readers who are in that arrested development who are struggling with coming of age. Um, and it's fine if you're an adult and you've and you relate to a teen protagonist who is trying to like come to terms with like, you know, their identity and trying to find their place in the world. But I think it's problematic when you go on Goodreads and you see adults being like, oh, this book is bad because the character is too immature. I can't relate to them. Or (laughs) this is not how I was when I was a teenager. And it's like, well, yeah, you were a teenager maybe 20 years ago. That's not how kids act these days. <laughs> Plus adults tend to like project like their current state on their teenager selves. Like, you were probably just as dumb when you were a teenager. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, I and feel there's... like it reminds me of our early days as a book club when we had like open book club discussions. And I remember specifically there was a guy who like said he did not relate to. Um, oh, that was my friend, by the way. I like <laughs> I, I freaking told him I'm like, hey, like. You can not like the book, but you have to be critical of it in a way where it's, you know, you're not just saying, I don't relate to this character. But obviously he didn't freaking listen to me. (laughs) Yeah, I should be more specific. A white dude was saying that he did not like this character because she was too submissive. Um, It was an Asian character who was, you know, kind of a pushover. And it's like, well, yeah, it's probably outside of your, your perspective, but that's kind of the point, right? I think... Yeah, like not liking something because you don't relate to the character without going deeper into like why the character is like that. Um, it's definitely like the height of like, what's the right word? Like snobbery? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I remember like when this op-ed was making its round in 
the YA author sphere, I saw that June C.L. Tan, the author of Jade Fire Gold, uh, she wrote, yeah, it feels very awkward when I have adult readers ask me if there's like spicy scenes in my book. And it's like, it's not, it's not that type of book. And it's kind of become a standard when you think of YA because like, I think people are confusing all YA books for a court of uh, thorns and roses where they think that there, <laughs> there are fairy men who are going to do the nasty with you. And it's like, no, it's not, it's not one of those books. <laughs> and I remember like commenting on June's tweet being like, I think it's really weird. Like, can we not as adults demand sex scenes with characters who are minors? Like, I just feel like, like it's just not our place to to ask for it yeah it really feels like like i mentioned before that the core of the problem is like an industry corporate marketing issue right like there is obviously demand for young adult or let's just say like yeah new adult protagonists that carry more mature let's say themes scenes and and issues um but the industry is not like making space for that and it doesn't help that the pricing has been making it really hard for young readers to afford these books. I'm seeing young adult hardcovers go for over like $25. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like what teenager can afford a $25 book (laughs) these days? Especially like, and, and so like what happens is they go into the romance section in bookstores and they buy like a paperback or two because it's cheaper. And those romance novels are not meant for young readers. So I don't know. I feel like there's like this blurring of lines, especially with uh, like, I'm not saying that it's it's bad to have like illustrated covers where you have like uh, your characters um, illustrated in a really cute, like in a really cute way, because that has made romance books like more accessible to people. But it's also like been confusing some people thinking that romance (laughs) novels are YA and YA novels are romance. And it's like, no, they're two totally different things. Yeah. And again, that's also like a marketing issue, right? Like part of marketing is making sure that your product is in front of the audience that you want to buy it. And obviously pricing, um, packaging are big parts of that. And there definitely seems to be like a mix up of like marketing goals and strategies, right? Like your packaging younger reader friendly covers on your adult books and you're pricing younger reader books for older adults with income, right? Like there's like, there's definitely some mixed messaging going around. And I think it definitely is like at the core of an industry issue, right? The publishing industry needs to just get its act together and like not be so reactive. Yeah. And I know that some people who, you know, read exclusively YA and their adult readers, it's because YA is so streamlined in terms of like the prose and the plots. Like it's very like fast in terms of uh, like hitting story beats. Whereas like with a lot of like literary novels, it is like less linear, more meandering. And that's not for everyone. So I think there is a difference between like a superhero movie and like a like, like an indie movie, Sundance film. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's exactly what uh, what it is. Like people are wanting like those like commercial rom com books, and 
not like the sad indie <laughs> romance yeah. dramedy stories. And it's just like, well, this, the only place I can get it is in YA. And what the industry needs to realize is that there, there's a market for that. So create the market, right? Like there's people willing to like there is an opportunity there to like carve your space as this is where you find those stories. I know there's a lot of consolidation happening and like across genres, but like, I don't know, like. Basic marketing is that when there's where there's demand, give supply, right? Like you just got to go back to economics 101 on this. Yeah, and it's really sad when like we've talked to authors who who have said, oh yeah, like this was an adult book, and I had to age the characters down because my editors said that the voice is too young, or um, it would just be more marketable if it was geared towards teenagers rather adults because the adult space it doesn't really have room for those stories, and it's like well. Clearly, there's enough authors who are writing stories for that demographic. Why don't you just let them write it and there will be room for it on the bookshelves? Yeah, it's like when I finally see, like, I'm watching an anime right now that's starring, like, actual adults. I'm like, man, this is kind of refreshing not to, like, have to deal with shonen protagonists all the time. Yeah, it's kind of like how I read Jose manga and seinen manga because it's geared towards older women. And it's like, yeah, I... It's like, I like high school classroom romances, but also, like, that doesn't reflect my experience. And sometimes I want to read stories with more, yeah, like, more sometimes of a character wanted, journey. Yeah, sometimes you want an office romance <laughs> instead. Or just, you know, like, more about female friendships than romance. Not everything mm. needs to be romance, which is another topic in this <laughs> YA, um, YA op-ed that's just been circulating yeah. around. Yeah, it's a frustration that a lot of young adult and middle grade authors have been having. And I feel like there needs to be a change soon because um, there's been enough complaints about it. Yeah, it's it's sad that I don't think we really have a call to action here besides just be aware of the situation and, you know, don't fall in the trap of like demanding younger, young, young adult books to be more adult. Yeah, you know? don't invade teen spaces. I mean, there's a loss of third spaces already. And, you know, like if if we're if we're taking away book Twitter and book blogs from from the teens and kids and like. There's like no room for them anywhere then. Like if you have no room on the internet, then like I just feel really sad that when I go to a lot of book events for um, YA and middle grade books, I hardly see teenagers or kids. And yeah, yeah, that should not be the case. And just on a personal level, like I'd rather not have my like preteen and teen nieces and nephews have to resort to reading adult romance because i don't i don't think they're ready for that or read ya books where the characters act way too old and (laughs) it's pretty much like reading an adult novel but written in ya prose yeah it's tricky it's tricky yeah well glad that there was such a reaction to it um you know feel bad for the the writer who got blown up. I don't feel but. bad at all. They missed the point. <laughs> they missed the entire point. I'm like, if you're going to write about this and actually like know the subject, actually know what you're talking about. I just, I just feel like it was very out of touch. Yeah. Well, 
With that, that'll do it for our mid-month book news check-in for February 2024. Um, before we go, just a quick reminder that for Book Club this month, we are reading Untethered Sky uh, by Fonda Lee, which is a novella about a girl who goes hunting for monsters with her giant bird. I personally have not started the book yet. I think it being like a shorter book is making my procrastination kind of worse. But I'm really looking forward to it. Fonda Lee is one of my favorite authors. I really loved her Green Bone Saga series. So looking forward to some good monster hunting action. But um, if you've read the book and have thoughts to share with us, um, please let us know on our Goodreads forums or our Discord server. Um, as always, we'd love to include your feedback on our discussion episodes whenever possible. Um, and yeah, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Brian, did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 